Welcome to the Italian Football Podcast with John Solano, Carlo Garganese and Nima Tuvali. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the Italian Football Podcast. I'm Carlo Garganese, joined as always by Nima Tavali. The World Cup is in full swing now. It doesn't get any easier for us Italians not being there. But um, we do have a, have a great show for you today. And what we're going to do is um, we're going to have a bit of Italy World Cup nostalgia. And we, we've had a lot of requests from, from listeners asking us to select Italy's greatest World Cup 11 of all time. So we're going to do that today. Um, that should be a bit of fun. And we're also going to review the first two match days of, of the World Cup. Um, we've got a few big topics to discuss, including Jurgen Klinsmann insulting Nimmer and the entire nation of Iran. Um, so Nimmer's got a, got a lot of strong words um, to, say on, um, to say on Jurgen Klinsmann. Iran are, are becoming a, a, a regular topic on this uh, Italian football podcast during the World Cup. Um, we also have a few club topics uh, and our usual Badjo and Prem face of the week. And let me just tell you, um, we could pretty much have a top 100 Prem faces of the week at this at this rate, the way things are going during this World Cup. We could actually have a top 100 talk sport Prem faces of the week, the way things are going. So that's going to be quite a lot of fun as well. That'll be towards the end of the show. Okay, um, so let's get into it. Right. Just before we start, um, we do have a little announcement to wake. Uh, John Solano, who has been part of the Italian Football Podcast during the during the last two years, since we since we began this in uh, September 2020, actually, is uh, is unfortunately he's moving on from the pod. Um, he, well, simply he 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 just didn't have time really to to carry on with the pod um, between family, work, life. Um, you know, juggling that with the pod, um, it's it's been a bit too much for him. So he is moving on. Um, we just want to thank him for everything in the last two years. Um, he he did all our editing during during these two years. Edited the pod. Uh, he did the graphics. Very very talented with the graphics. And of course, you know, you've heard him on the pod uh, as well on the on the Monday show. He often was on. So um, yeah, we want to we want to thank him. Uh, we wish him very the very best for the future. Um, I'm sure we will have him on as a guest soon to talk about his beloved Roma, as he calls them. Um, and uh, yeah, so big thanks to John and all the best. Okay, right. Let's uh, let's get straight into it then. Um, Italy's greatest ever World Cup eleven. Um, now, those of us who listen to the Thursday show knows that we did a, a best 11 of the, of the Serie A season so far in our mid-season award. So go and check that out if you haven't already. Um, what we're going to do today is going to follow the same format. We're going to go through each department on the, on the field. Um, we're going to start with the goalkeepers. I'm going to provide a short list. Then we're going to, both me and Nima, are going to pick our, 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 best, our best goalkeeper in the World Cup for Italy. Uh, then we're going to do the same with defenders, the midfielders, with the forwards. Uh, and then we're going to do the best coach. And then we're going to pick a, a best 11 
and um, yeah, that should be should be a lot of fun. Take a listen, and you can all, guys can all pick your your best as well, and, and tell us what you think. Okay, so we'll start off with the goalkeeper. Um, I'm going to read out the shortlist first, and then and then we'll pick our winners. So the shortlist I've gone for is, and just remember when I say this that I've only picked players based on their on their performances in the World Cup. So these aren't necessarily the best Italian goalkeepers of all time, or even the best goalkeepers, Italy national team goalkeepers, because you know you've got some that were great in European Championships, but but you know maybe didn't play well in World Cups or never played in World Cups. Um, you know, so so this is only based on World Cup performance. Um, so the shortlist I've gone for is Giampiero Combi, who was the goalkeeper in the 1934 uh, World Cup when Italy hosted and won their very first World Cup. Uh, Enrico Albertosi, who was uh, at four World Cups actually in the 60s and 70s for Italy, and he was a starter at two, including in the 1970 World Cup when Italy reached the final and lost to Brazil. Dino Zoff, who was at three World Cups, he won the 1982 World Cup at the age of 40 as the captain. He was goalkeeper of the tournament in in 1982. He's actually goalkeeper of the tournament in three major tournaments, although, like I said, two of those were European Championships, so they don't really count here. Uh, has the record for minutes unbeaten in international football from 1972 to 74. That went into the start of the of the World Cup in 1974. Walter Zenga. 1990, Italian 90 goalkeeper. He holds the record for minutes gone in a World Cup with without conceding a goal. He he didn't concede. Italy didn't concede a goal in Italian 90 until um, the semi-final, midway through the second half, when Italy were one 0 up, and Zenga actually made a massive mistake, which allowed Canigia to to equalise, and then Italy went out on the, on penalties. Sadly, Gianluca Pagliuca, who was goalkeepers for Italy. At 1994 World Cup, when they reached the, the final and lost on penalties to Brazil, and 1998, when Italy reached the, the quarterfinals and lost on penalties again to uh, France. Um, Buffon and Gianluigi Buffon, of course, who went to five World Cups, uh, which is a record uh, for a goalkeeper, uh, only conceded two goals in 2006, a penalty and an own goal, when they, of course, they won the World Cup. He should have gone to six World Cups if Italy hadn't lost uh, that playoff to Sweden uh, to qualify for 2018. So those are those are my um, are my shortlist. Uh, Nima, anyone you want to single out and who would you who would you have as your winner? Oof. Um it's quite diff it's it's so difficult, isn't it? Um because if it's just that that position, goalkeepers, Italy have had some magical goalkeepers. Uh, institutions, if you will, um, I I can't go past Dino Zoff, uh, even though Buffon is Buffon. I mean, he's also. I mean, it's so hard. But Dino Zoff, you know, well, the way you know, winning it at eighty-two, when he was in his prime, he was the best in the world. No one came near him. Um, you final, you know, two. You know what what he did for Italy and Juve. I I can't. It, it feels like it's a dead heat between him and Buffon. And and he, and, and this is coming from someone who absolutely worshipped Walter Zenga as as a child. Um, but I it, it, I can't choose between Buffon and Zoff. I really can't. Yeah, yeah, that's where I'm at as well. I mean, I know I've included Combi, but obviously I've seen nothing of 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 Combi. <laughs> There's no footage in the 30s. There's only very very bad highlights from from the 30s um 
all the other goalkeepers on the list, I've watched every single game that they played in the World Cup. So, you know, from that, um, I think it's very, very hard to to separate Zoff and Buffon. Um, I think that if you look at Zoff, um, I think he probably had uh, more. He, he played more at the World Cup than, than Buffon in terms of, you know, it wasn't just one tournament. See, see, for Buffon, strangely, 1998 World Cup, he was just a backup. He was a reserve. He was a third choice because he was uh, 19 at that time, I think, uh, or 20. And then you had um, 2002. Italy went out in the in the last 16, and although he did play well in that tournament. Uh, but they went out in the last 16. 2006, he was absolutely brilliant. Well, play, goalkeeper of the tournament by, by mile. He was as... as as good at that tournament almost as any goalkeeper has been at any tournament. It's just in terms of he was just pretty much perfect. The only goals he conceded was a free cone goal from Sicardo in a, in a group game and a penalty. And he didn't concede a goal in open play, so he was he was absolutely brilliant. And he was you know he played a, he was absolutely pivotal in Italy winning the World Cup. You know if you look at the saves and the saves he made in the semi final. If you look at um, you know the save from Zidane in extra time in the final in two thousand and six. But then after that, you know, 2010, I think he played the first half of the first game in 2010, then he got injured. Um, or was it the first game and then he got injured? Um, and then um, Marchetti came in and was a total disaster. Um, so he didn't really play at all in 2010. Then in 2014, Italy went out in the group stage. He didn't do anything wrong again in that. Uh, in fact, they remember him making an absolute wonder save against Uruguay in that third game when when it looked like that was going to keep Italy in the tournament and then they, they conceded. Um, and then obviously 2018, Italy didn't qualify. So weirdly, weirdly with Buffon, you're kind of looking at one tournament. Whereas with, with Zoff, uh, he played in 74. Okay, they've got knocked out in the group stage, but then 78, Italy were so close to, to reaching the final. They 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 were beating Holland, uh, and then they needed to uh, just needed to beat Holland to get to the final. And then Holland scored two long range goals, which. Actually, Zoff was was at fault for at least one of those goals. They're like just miracle goals from like forty yards out. Uh, and then eighty two, uh, which was his last World Cup at the age of forty, in which he was uh, he, he he had a great World Cup, except for he made one he made one mistake. He made a big mistake against Brazil uh, for the Socrates equaliser in that classic three two. Got beaten at his near post, but then he made an absolute miracle save. One of the great saves in World Cup history, in the, like the last seconds, last minutes to at three two from a header from Oscar from a free kick, which, which, uh, which was ensured that Italy, uh, you know, went through. And then obviously, yeah, they went on and won the tournament. And he was great in the semis against Poland, and then in the final, he was, yeah, he was really good again in the final uh, against West Germany. So it is very, very difficult to, to separate them. I mean, I would like to give it a tie, to, to be honest with you. Uh, I know it's a bit of a cop out. Um, but maybe, maybe I go for Buffon. Maybe I go for Buffon just because I think he was absolutely perfect in uh, mm. in two thousand and six. Whereas Zoff made that one mistake against Brazil in uh, in eighty two. Mm. No, fair enough. Fair enough. I think, okay. yeah, I that, that's a that's a <laughs> that's a good that's a good explanation. But I can't choose between them. I really can't. Yeah, fair enough. It is it is almost impossible to be fair. Um, okay, uh, Italy's best World Cup defender ever. So I'm going to give you the shortlist here. This could have been about 30 names long. <laughs> so don't start shouting if you're one of your favourite defenders is out there because Italy has produced so many incredible world class defenders over the years that it's uh, 
it's uh, yeah, it's it's, it's just a joke, really. Um, so Tarsizio Bugnic at um, in defence. He was uh, part of the Grande Inter team in the sixties. Uh, he played in three World Cups, 66, 70, 74. He was a right back and a centre back. Also played at sweeper. He was he was he was nicknamed the Rock. He was really just a real strong defender, tenacious, really quick, uh, very very good in the air. Um, one of the famous quotes about Pele comes from Bergnich because he he was marking him in the final in 1970, and when Pele scored his header, it was his leap over Bergnich that, um, that 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 scored that goal, and he he said. I told myself before the game, he's made of skin and bones just like everyone else, but I was wrong. So that was Bergnich on, on Pele. Um, Paquetti, Jacinto Paquetti, also part of the Grande Inter. Um, for me, Italy's greatest left back of all time after after Paolo Maldini. He was one of the first, he was a really revolutionary defender. He was a real trailblazer, one of the first offensive fullbacks in Europe, you know, back in that time in the 60s and 70s. Um, and even really into the 80s, to be honest with you, even into the 90s in some cases, you know, defenders' jobs were to defend. You know, uh, you get a lot of defenders who wouldn't even cross the halfway line. You know, Facchetti really was one of the first, along with some of the Brazilians, you know, one of the first to, uh, certainly in Europe, the first, maybe the first big famous defender to to really be an attacking fullback and get up and down the pitch, scored a lot of goals, um, you know, tall, elegant. He was a leader. He was the captain of Italy. Uh, at the 1970, he played in 66, 70, and 74. He was captain of 70 and 74. Uh, he was also captain when they won Euro 68. Uh, really, really handsome guy as well. Really looked the part. You know, whenever we say about Italian footballers having the best looking footballers, you know, Facchetti was the, the example of that. And he was a, yeah, he was a fantastic, fantastic player. Um, Antonio Cabrini played in 78, 82, 86. Uh, another offensive left back, uh, very good technically, fantastic crosser, and uh, he he was a really crucial part. Um, he was actually voted the young player of the tournament in the 1978 World Cup, and he was a crucial part of the team in in the 82 tournament. He provided the cross for Rossi's header for the um, the, the first goal in that famous 3-2 win against Brazil, and he he also missed a penalty, became the first player ever to miss a penalty in a World Cup final against Germany. West Germany in that final, but luckily it didn't. Um, it didn't uh, come back to, um, to 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 haunt Italy. He actually, was in. Uh, I was watching a documentary the other day. He was actually in tears and crying at half time in that in that game uh, uh, against Germany because it, Italy went in at nil nil at half time, but then they came out and they won three um, one. Also part of that team, Claudio Gentile played at seventy eight and eighty two. Um, his name really was quite ironic because uh, he definitely wasn't uh, gentle. He was the uh, one of the big, the one of the most famous or infamous hard men of European football. Uh, absolutely fantastic, world class man marker, man marked Maradona and Zico in that tournament. Um, I think he fouled Maradona about ten times in that game uh, against Zico. He actually tore Zico's shirt in half at one point in that game, and he just was feared by everyone. Um, Kempes, Mario Kempes, I remember, once said something along the lines of um, Claudio Gentile would follow you everywhere, even to the toilet. You know, he was he was just an incredible... Back in the days when man-marking was still a thing, you don't get them anymore, anymore really. Um, and then you had Gaetano Scherer, who was the good cop to to, to Claudio Gentile's bad, uh, bad cop. They, they both, along with Cabrini, they both played for that great Trapattoni Juventus team that dominated uh, Italian and European football. They won all three European Cups uh, between them uh, at that time. And these two formed a fantastic partnership. 
and Scherer was the elegant Libro. He was the guy that um, that read the game, the kind of the Beckenbauer uh, player uh, in in defence. Uh, he brought the ball out from defence and created uh, and started counter attacks. And uh, you saw that if you'd watched the the second goal that Italy scored in the nineteen eighty two final was Shirer coming out of defence and um, he did that fantastically. And he died tragically at a very, very young age, just after, I think it was 1989, he was a scout for Juventus. He died in a in, a, in an accident, um, a car accident. And it was, yeah, very, very sad. One of the tra- most tragic days of Italian sport when, when Shirer died. Um, Giuseppe Bergami, who was also in that 82 team, um, he was only 18 years old at, uh, at the 1982 World Cup. And he uh, went on um, and played in four World Cups and was still playing for Italy in the 1998 World Cup at the age of 34 and had a fantastic, brilliant tournament for Italy at the age of 34, um, just like he did in 1982 at the age of 18, where he's already had a moustache. He already looked about 30 in that World Cup. He was, a br- again, a brilliant defender, uh, fantastic marker, man marker, uh, very, very brilliant tactically. And he man-marked Rummeniger who was the star man of West Germany in that 1982 World Cup final and didn't didn't give him, didn't get a kick from him. That just showed what a phenomenon, what a wonder kid he was. And he had an absolutely legendary career for Italy uh, and for, for Inter as well. Um, brilliant player. Pietro Viecowood, also in the 82 World Cup squad, although he didn't play. Um, Maradona said that he was the toughest ever opponent he had. He was, and he wasn't the only one that said that. Uh, Lineker said that, Batistuta said that. He was uh, nicknamed the Tsar because he's the son of a Red Army soldier. He was half half Soviet, and he was the quickest defender maybe I've ever seen. Like even a, I remember he was still playing in Serie A at the age of forty, and he's still then at the age of forty, no one could outpace him. And he played uh, for Italy eighty six as a regular and in nineteen ninety uh, as well. And he was he was absolutely magnificent. Uh, Franco Baresi, of course, uh, we're only getting to the Milan guys now. Uh, he was also in that 82 World Cup squad and he didn't even get a kick in that. He also played in 1990 and 94 where he was a key man. Um, the part of that 1990 defence, which was virtually unbeatable, he was unbeatable if it wasn't for the mistake from Zenga that Italy didn't concede a goal until then, barely conceded a chance in that tournament. And then at 1994, when he was the age of 34, he suffered a meniscus injury in his first game, uh, had knee surgery and returned three weeks later for the final Um I mean, unbelievable. Uh, I think he still had like something in his knee, a plate in his knee or something. And uh, he uh, marked uh, Romario in that final and was man of the match and uh, unfortunately missed the penalty. Uh, but, well, you know, what a player. Uh, for me, the greatest club centre-back there's ever been. Uh, no doubt about it for me. I think at his peak, I don't think there's been a defender ever better than him. Uh, Paolo Maldini next I'm um, getting out of breath here <laughs> there's so many Italian <laughs> defenders uh, 1990 94 98 played in four World Cups he's got the record for most minutes played in World Cup matches in history the second most matches after Lota Mateus he was in two teams of the tournament he was actually also in three teams of the tournament for the Euros I mean that's just ridiculous he's in five teams of the tournament for Italy <laughs> it's just absolutely insane uh, played as a left back and a centre back equally well um, played a lot of the 94 tournament as a centre-back because of because of Berezi's men- injury that I, I mentioned. He was absolutely world-class in those first three tournaments. 2002, he had a bit of a difficult time in 2002. He lost uh, Arn for that goal, but I mean, that goal should never have been because it had been cheated already, so that, let's not count that. But he was absolutely magnificent. 
Uh, Costa Curta played in 94-98, partner of uh, Maldini uh, for Milan, or partner of Baresi, I should say. Uh, he missed the 94 World Cup through suspension. And that same year, also missed the Champions League final for Milan against Barcelona, also through suspension. So he was really unlucky that year. Uh, but he was, again, another world-class, another world-class defender. Uh, and then finally, we get onto the gang of 2006. We've got Fabio Cannavaro, who played in 98, 2002, 2006, 2010. Um, for me, and I was at that World Cup in Germany, I watched every single Italy game live except for the final. I've never seen live or on TV a higher level of, of performance by a defender game after game, consistency-wise, than Cannavaro did in that 2006 World Cup. He was literally just just it was just un, it was just a clinic, a defensive clinic every single game from Canada. The number of interceptions and tackles, and then you've got the leadership, and he was brilliant in the air. He won everything in the air despite his small stature. Um, he was just absolutely magnificent. And that semi-final against Germany was one of the greatest defensive performances I've ever seen. He just was everywhere. So many tackles and blocks and Oh, and he started the goal for the second for the Italy's second goal uh, for Del Piero. I mean, he was brilliant. Uh, as was Gianluca Zambrotta, who played as Italy's left back or right back in that tournament in 2006, and also played in 2002. And then finally, just as a kind of a, as a kind of a one-hit wonder and a kind of surprise, Fabio Grosso in 2006 was the real surprise of that tournament, and uh, obviously scored the goal against Germany in that semi-final that got them to the final, and then also scored the winner. Um, the winning penalty in the final. Also, won a, a crucial penalty against Australia in the, the second round, which Tossi scored in the last kick of the game in injury time. Um, he was a very, uh, a very surprise hero for Italy in 2006. I'm going to take a breather now. Um, <laughs> tell me what you tell me what you think. Um, that this is the thing, though. I mean, again, with the goalkeepers and defenders, because Italy have had so many, you know, superstars. Um, it's it's impossible um, to pick one, but the one that I've chosen is because is one that um, is is ha- is was the one that may have not won the World Cup, but the level he played at consistently throughout his career at club and international level for Italy uh, played in one final, um, played won a third, won a bronze medal in ninety final ninety four. Um, should have probably won it in 2002 if it wasn't for certain 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 people um, in a very very weird World Cup. Look, um, it's Paolo Maldini. I don't think anyone comes close to Maldini. Uh, for me, he's the greatest defender of all time. Um, I think he the level he played at, and the fact that he played it as a left back, as a centre back, he played as a wing back for for Italy in a three five two. Um, and he did so at an at a consistently fantastic level year after year after year. I don't think it matters that he didn't win the World Cup because I don't think anyone has ever been as good as he has been. For me, he is the greatest defender of all time. Um, and yeah, it's it's Paolo Maldini for me. Yeah, I, I think that there's so many great players here, but I think what separates Maldini from the rest is that he was world class in three tournaments, you know, and in all of those three tournaments, Italy got deep as well. Nineteen ninety, they got to the semis, but then they played. They won the third place playoff as well. You know, ninety four, they got to the final. Uh, so he played the maximum amount of games in those two tournaments, and then ninety eight, they got to the quarter final, and he was absolutely world class in all three of them. How many? How many defenders 
in any nation do you know that were world class in three tournaments? You know, the best, you know, among the top defenders in the whole tournament, in all three tournaments, you know. So for that reason, I, I think I have to go for Maldini. If I was picking a greatest ever performance by a defender in a World Cup, I would go for Cannavaro. Um, because, he, like I said, in 2006, he was literally the highest level that a defender could be in every single game. He was perfect in every game. He was just faultless. Um, it was like watching an alien play. I can remember just saying to my, my friend Pep that I was watching it with, during, I can remember just saying every game, this is just absolutely ridiculous watching Cannavaro live. Just was watching him. Not just because you see things off the, you know, live that you don't see on the pitch, just just his whole leadership and the way that he marshaled the fence and he organised them and held the line and, and everything, as well as everything that you that you see on the TV. I mean, just amazing, amazing. Whereas these other players, you know, even those that had great tournaments. I mean, Gentile and Chirel were amazing, world-class in two tournaments each. Um, Cabrini maybe as well. You know, and then, you know, Baresi, but he didn't play much in 94. World-class in 90, but only played like a couple of games in 94. Um, so, yeah, if you're looking at the, you know, longevity, I think Maldini. Maldini for me as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I can't get past. I mean, he he was, and he is he for me is the best defender of all time. Um, genuinely, is I think no one in my lifetime that I've seen, and even before comes up to the level. I mean, we've had players that have been trailblazers and and interpreted roles differently, wing back as wing backs and central defenders, but to play at that mm. level for as long as he did, and, yeah, and at the that's, level, I think that's what wins it for him because you know I mean then you have got Baresi as well you got Baresi but you know he was he was I mean for me it's always out Baresi and Maldini for greatest mm-hmm. defender of all time always it's always out of those two uh, oh well for second and third place for first place is obviously Van Dijk but second and third is is Maldini and, and Baresi <laughs> okay right let's let's move on to. Italy's best World Cup midfielder ever. So I'm going to go through the shortlist here. And there's not as many as, as there is in defence because weirdly enough, and we were discussing this on a recent pod, weren't we? How Italy has this um, this golden age of central midfielders right now. Whereas for most of Italy's history, yeah. Italy's produced, haven't they? They've produced so many incredible defenders and so many incredible attackers in abundance and goalkeepers. But midfield, central midfielders anyway, um, not not as many, uh, really. Well, not many, not that many at all, actually. To be honest, um, so so um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the best midfielders, and just bear in mind that I've only I mean I'm looking at central central midfielders. I mean central midfielders and attacking midfielders and defensive midfielders. Wingers, I've got a separate category for them. I want to do a separate one, separate one for them because when you think of midfielders, you generally always think of kind of central, more central based. Don't you than than than, uh, mm. than wide midfielders or wingers? So uh, central midfielders, right? So first of all, um, we've got from the third nineteen thirties, Italy, of course, won the nineteen thirty four and nineteen thirty eight World Cup. We've got Luis Monti, who played for uh, the only player I believe, unless I'm forgetting someone, who played in two World Cup finals for two different teams. He played for Argentina in nineteen thirty. They reached the final, lost to Uruguay, the first ever World Cup final, and then he. As part of the Oriundi um, that that Mussolini managed <laughs> managed to steal for Italy for 1934, um, he was uh, one of their key men, and then winning the 1934 final. Then, of course, we've got someone who everyone will have heard of, uh, Giuseppe Meazza, 
who was Italy's star man in 1934 and 1938. I mean, he played as a midfielder and a forward. The, the formations back then were, were kind of a bit different uh, than they are now. Uh, kind of the WM formations and the like. And he was um, uh, the Mitoldo system as well. And, they, and, and he was kind of sort of in between a little bit. Um, but I'll put him in the midfield category here. Um, he's still the second highest scorer in Italy's history. He was player of the tournament in 1934. He got two assists in the final in uh, 1938. And he got that fa- the famous winner against the favourites, Brazil, in the 1938 semi when he, he scored the penalty where his, uh, his shorts actually fell down as he was taking the penalty and he had to hold them up. Um, the elastic broke. He had to hold them up while he was taking the penalty. Uh, and there is actually images of that. So that is, uh, not a, that is actually a true story. Um, Gianni Rivera in 1962, 1966, 1970 and 1974. Uh, he was the original golden boy uh, of uh, Italian football a long time before the likes of Del Piero and Baggio and um, Totti and, the, and these like. Um, he was um, he didn't always have an easy international career. That Italy couldn't always find a way to play him and and Mazzola together. That he was his great rival. Rivera was Milan. Mazzola was Inter, and they never never found a way. A bit like uh, for those uh, the English football fans, a bit like Lampard, Gerrard. Although they were totally different players, those they were more classy players than they were. But they could never fit them in the same team, and and it's quite funny because. Italy got to the, the final of the 1970 tournament with the two of them playing um, what kind of to translate was kind of it was called the relay uh, where the first half would be played by Mazzola and the second half would be played by Rivera and they did that throughout the, the tournament up until the final and uh, which is kind of a weird way of playing um, but Rivera did did still play an important role he scored um, he scored the winner in the, that famous uh, 1970 semi-final against uh, against Germany, West Germany, that was 4-3, uh, the game of the century as it was known as. Um, but he always was much better for Milan than he was for, for Italy. Uh, then we've got Mazzola himself, um, was um, a player in 66, 70 and 74. He was absolutely fantastic in, in 1970. Uh, he was the son of Valentino Mazzola, who was the, the, the star of the Grande Torino team, who uh, all perished in a in a in a tragic plane crash, in a superga, superga uh, air tragedy, plane tragedy in 1949. Um, Valentino died. He was Italy's best, greatest player uh, uh, of the time. He was a world star, global star. He died, um, but his son went on to become a just as equally legendary player. And he was part of the Grande Inter team. Uh, really elegant goal scoring, attacking midfielder, brilliant player, brilliant playmaker, creativity. Um, moving forward, Romeo Benetti, who was like the Gattuso of the 70s for, for Italy. He was a real, just looking at him, he was, when you talk about hard men, he was really tough. He was, even Gentile would be scared of him. He, just to look at, he was tough as nails, real strong, biting tackler. Um, and he was part of the, the, the really the great 78 team. He was like the, the veteran. Like they had a very young team Italy in the 1978 World Cup that did so, so well and almost reached the final. And he was like the one kind of old player in that team, him and Zoff, the old outfield player that kind of provided the experience. And he was, uh, yeah, he was really, really good. Um, then we've got Giancarlo Antonioni, who was the, a much more elegant player, Fiorentina legend. And he was uh, absolutely brilliant in the 78, uh, playmaker, creative. And again, in 1982, wonder, wonderful, part of the wonderful midfield. 
um, with Tardelli and, and Bruno Conti, and he played a, 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 an important role in that win over over Brazil. And then he got injured in the semi final for Italy in 1982 against Poland, and then and then uh, missed actually missed the final in the, in 1982. But he was a wonderful player. Got a lot of injuries later on in his career. Broke his leg quite a lot actually. Um, then we move on to Marco Tardelli, who uh, everyone will know, of course, from the 1982 World Cup and probably the most famous World Cup final celebration, I think it's safe to say, uh, for his scream, Tardelli's scream. He scored the second goal in that in that uh, final win over, over West Germany. He also played in 78 and in 86, although I don't think he got any minutes in 86. He was well past his best by then. But 78 and 82, he was world-class central midfielder. And he was just the complete midfielder. He did have everything. He was a fantastic... He, he could run. He was fantastic presser, stamina, fantastic tackler. But he also boxed the box, got scored goals, uh, good passer. He was he could do everything. He was he was the all-action central midfielder, wonderful player. Uh, every single team would, would have him in their team, basically. Uh, Giuseppe Giannini played in 1990, uh, Roma, Roma legend, um, the the prince. He was his, was his nickname, if I remember correctly. Uh, scored against the USA in 1990, elegant, creative attacking midfielder. Then we've got Dino Baggio, who probably wasn't an amazing player, but he had an amazing uh, World Cup for Italy in 1994. He was one of the stars of the tournament, actually, for Italy. He really got hot in that tournament and he... He scored an absolutely crucial goal against Norway in the second round when Italy looked like they were about to go out. They were down to 10 men in that game. They got Paluca sent off. They'd lost their opening game to Ireland. It looked like they were going to go out. He scored a header. He was great on headers. Very tall, lanky midfielder. Scored a header. Italy won the game. And then he scored a brilliant long-range goal. Had a good long shot on him against Spain in the quarterfinal. They won that game 2-1. Um, really, really great in, in, in night forward. It wasn't a fantastic player, but he was he was really great in that tournament. Uh, Albertini also played in that 94 World Cup, also played in 98. Um, yeah, really kind of uh, reduced the kind of player that that was, you know, just kept things ticking in the midfield. Very good pass, a good range of passing, uh, good technically. Could be a little bit weak and flaky sometimes. Maybe the kind of player that might not make it so much in today's age, but he was a very good player. Uh, also for that great Milan team that won, dominated Italian football in the in the 90, first half of the 90s. Uh, and then we move on to the the, the, the 2000s, uh, the 2006 World Cup. And of course, Andrea Pirlo, who um, was absolutely brilliant in that 2006 World Cup. Um, three man of the matches in that 2006 World Cup. Was in the top three players of the tournament, if I, if I remember correctly. Uh, I can't remember if he was second or third, um, but he was in the top three. And he was man of the match in the final, if I'm not mistaken. Also played in 2010 and 2014, although he was injured until the closing stages of that uh, of that last game against Slovakia, where even half fit, he basically completely changed the game and Italy almost managed to sneak through. Uh, and then in 2014, he was one of the few players that was, I guess, could hold their head up high from the group stage, played really well against England in the first game. And his... Um, his partner, I'm really starting to lose my voice. His partner for for Milan uh, in that great Milan team under Carlo Ancelotti, Rino Gattuso, who was the 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 the, the, the ball winner, and uh, Pirlo was the ball user, and Gattuso was the again like Benetti, as I said before, you know, all over the pitch, putting in tackles. A very not a very Italian player. Italy not used to having these kind of players. 
um, but he was important because Italy need, don't usually didn't usually have them at the time, and uh, he played a very key role in Italy winning the in the World Cup. Also played in two thousand and two and scored a goal that was disallowed for for a totally non-existent offside, which would have put Italy through against Korea. Would have been the golden goal. Um, so he was there in two thousand and two as well. But two thousand and six, very very key player then. Nima. <laughs> oh. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, central midfielders, I think, you know, it's um, it's difficult, like you said, um, because like you said, because, you know, goalkeepers, defenders and strikers have been always Italy's strength strength, and their they're best players. But I think for me, um, Gianni Rivera and Andrea Pirlo are in a in a league of their own with with Tardelli. I think those three are just head and shoulders above everyone else. Sandro Mazzola, obviously fantastic, but the biggest star of that age was Gianni Rivera. Um, and and so, you know, with, with everything he won and everything he did. Um, so, um, no, it's uh, it, it's got to be one of Pirlo or, or Gianni Rivera. But I, I think given that I've seen Pirlo play, and in 2006, he, Italy does not win the World Cup without Pirlo. So I think I have to go with Pirlo. Yeah, I mean, if we're picking, if we're picking the greatest ever Italian midfielder of all time, I probably would go Rivera or Pirlo. If we're going purely on just what they did in their career, how good they were, you know, Rivera for Milan, Rivera's performance for, for AC Milan in the 1969 European Cup final where they thrashed Ajax 4-1, I've watched that game is one of the greatest, and it's never talked about, obviously it's a long time ago, so a lot of people haven't seen it. If Those of you listening, see, I mean, YouTube, you might be able to find it on YouTube, the full game. If not, there's a site called Foot, Foot, Footballia, Football IA, Google that. It's got an incredible, massive database of past football games. Uh, you'll find it there. Uh, watch January Rivera's performance against Ajax in that game. It was absolute genius in that game. He just completely, it was Johan Cruyff's Ajax team, it was just before uh, Ajax were became the, the the absolute all dominant team, but they were still a fantastic team. Um, and he was he was absolutely absolutely brilliant. Uh, but for Italy, like I said before, he never he never really done it. He didn't you know he wasn't even a starter in seventy, um, and you know he, he came on mainly as a sub. And you know sixty six Italy were a disaster. They went out in the group stages to North Korea. And 62, again, they went out in the group stages after that um, uh, battle of Santiago against Chile. Um, you know, and then 74, Italy went out in the group stages again and, and everybody was really past their best in that tournament, including Rivera and, and uh, Mazzola. So, you know, I, don't, I don't, wouldn't include Rivera for that reason. But um, at purely at World Cups, for me, it's out of two players. It's out of um, Tardelli and Pirlo um, for me. Um, so I'm going to go just to mix things up I'm going to go for Tardelli I'm going to go for Tardelli because he was world class in 78 and in 80, in 82 as well and um, yeah he scored that goal in the final and yeah so I'm going to go I'm going to go for Tardelli but absolutely Pirlo Tardelli on Pirlo the definite top two for me hmm. fair okay. enough okay right uh, this one I'm going to do a little bit faster. There's not many on the shortlist here. So Italy's best World Cup winger of all time. Um, so I've gone for in my shortlist, Angelo Domenghini. Uh, he played in the 1970 World Cup. He was fast, skillful, 
goal-scoring winger. He's, again, part of the Grande Inter of the 60s, but also part of Cagliari's famous Scudetto winning team of 1970, along with Gigi Riva. Then I've gone Franco Calcio, a huge fan of this guy. Played in 1974, 78 and 82. Um he was absolutely amazing in 1978. Uh, just unstoppable in 78. He was so fast, skillful. He was strong, uh, scored goals. Uh, he could go right and left. He just terrorised uh, fullbacks. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes in by an Italian manager of all time, one which I would love to know the answer. If I ever get an interview with Franco Calcio or with someone from the 1978 team, I will ask this question. Is Italy were playing Holland in the second group stage of of uh, 1978 World Cup. They had to beat Holland to get into the finals, play Argentina in the final. They were 1-0 up at half-time. Calcio had absolutely destroyed, was destroying Holland. He was a clear man of the match. He was absolutely terrorising their left-back, whose name I've forgotten. He was the left-back. I think he ended up being a Southampton. He became the manager of Southampton a couple of decades later. I've forgotten his name. Calcio was destroying him and he was creating chance after chance for them. For some reason, I do not know why, but uh, Enzo Biazzot took Calcio off at half-time, went defensive, and they tried to hold on to their lead. It just, you know, the old Italian way of the ahead, try and hold on to what you've got. And then Holland scored these two long shots, and Italy and Italy uh, went out and then played in the third and fourth playoff. Holland went to the final. I will never understand that Calcio was, was magnificent. And he was in the 82 squad, or he didn't play much. He did come on in the final for the last few minutes. Um, but uh, he was he, he was old by then. He was I think he was like in his thirties by then. But 1978, he was absolutely at the peak of his of his powers. Then we've got Bruno Conti played in 1982 and 86, and he was one of the players of the tournament in 1982. In fact, for me, he was the player of the tournament in 1982. For me, uh, in fact, Pele called him the player of the tournament in 1982. He was in left footed Roma legend, incredibly skillful, um, fantastic left foot. Watch him in the 1982 game against Brazil um, in the in the, the famous 3-2. He ran rings against them, around them in that game. Got three assists in the tournament. He was man of the match in the final. Uh, he got an assist and, the, and a hockey assist in that final. And he won the penalty, which I said, as I said before, Cabrini missed. Uh, he was labelled Mara Zico at that tournament. That's a, that's a combination of the names Maradona and Zico. Uh, absolutely fantastic player. L- unbelievable player to watch as well. So exciting to watch. Then we've got Roberto Donadoni, Milan legend, played in 1994. Uh, for me, one of the most underrated players um, of the generation. People forget about him because that Milan team was so great with the three Dutchmen, with Maldini, with Baresi, with all the others that they had that people forget about Donadoni, who was absolutely world-class himself. And again, incredibly skillful, brilliant at feints, crossing, so creative. Um, and he, uh, yeah, really important in that 90, especially in that 1990 team, he, uh, he had the shot that led to Scalacci's winner in the quarterfinal against Ireland. And he was actually man of the match in that semi-final against Ireland. He was brilliant in that semi. He was taking players on f- for fun. And as often happens in Penning Shoe, as usually the best player on the pitch that usually misses in Penning Shoe, as always happens. And he missed the, the first, Italy's first penalty, or the fourth penalty, but it's the first one that Italy missed in that, in that shootout. And then Italy obviously went out. And he was great in 94. He got two assists in 94 as well. Uh, and finally, uh, Mauro Camaronesi, who played in 2006 and 2010. Um, and yeah, played his part in 2006. Thought he had a good tournament in 2006. Nothing amazing, but but um, but yeah, did did well. Nema? Um, for me, uh, I mean, Camaronesi, Donadoni, these are the ones I've seen. 
but um, and obviously I have a you know especially Donadoni was I thought he was one of the best like he was such an he's such an institution isn't he? But Bruno Conti is is Bruno Conti. <laughs> it's just I think it's not even close. That's how much better he is than everyone else. Yeah, for the yeah, for Italian me, national side, I mean. Yeah, yeah. For me, if we're talking about World Cups, for me, it's out of Conti, Donadoni, and Calzio. Um, but you know, Calzio had one outstanding tournament, and they come fourth. Uh, Conti had one absolutely world class tournament. Like for me, like I said, player of the tournament for me in '82, uh, and then a decent tournament in '86. He's one of the few decent players for Italy in '86 in, in a bad team who went out second round. Donadoni was was brilliant in '90 90 and '94, um, but I just think Conti, just by the fact that he was for me the best player of the tournament, many people's best player of the tournament. How many player? How many? How many players in history can you say of an Italian player he was player of the tournament? You know, maybe maybe a few in history. You know, Cannavaro maybe in two thousand six, and that's maybe your own. Maybe Baggio in ninety four. Maybe and you know, you know, there's not many. So for that, that for me, that's enough to for Conti to to uh, to win. Yeah, me too. Right, finally, Italy's best World Cup forward ever. Um, so. We Oof, have. This is going to be a long one. <laughs> I'll try to be a bit quicker because I literally am going to lose my voice. Uh, we've got Angelo Schiavio, who who scored uh, four goals in 1934 World Cup uh, and was scored the winner in the final. We've got Silvio Piola, who was the second top scorer in 1938 uh, World Cup, which Italy won as well with five goals. He scored two in the final. Uh, he actually scored 13 34 for Italy um, and would have scored more but for World War II. He's the third top scorer of all time for Italy and still, which is ridiculous, the top scorer in the history of Serie A, Lazio legend. Then we've got Gigi Riva, who's, who is Italy's all-time leading scorer. He had an incredible left foot. Uh, his left foot was so powerful that he actually once broke the arm of a fan in the crowd when he took a shot and it went into the crowd. Uh, he was brilliant in the 1970 World Cup. He scored three goals. Uh, unfortunately, his his career ended very prematurely, like around about the age of thirty, even just before, because he kept break he broke his leg twice for Italy. Um, Roberto Boninzegna, who actually scored Italy's goal in that World Cup four one final loss to Brazil in nineteen seventy, played in seventy four as well. He scored two goals in nineteen seventy. Roberto Bettega, who was one of uh, Italy's first grey haired footballers, uh, he was the original white feather. Uh, absolutely fantastic in the 1978 World Cup. He scored two goals, scored the winner against Argentina in the group stages. Argentina went on to win that tournament. Uh, he was in the team of, of the tournament in that. Uh, he actually would have been the number nine in the 1982 World Cup instead of Paolo Rossi, but he was injured for that tournament or he would have played for Italy in 1982. Uh, he was brilliant. He was he was a, the complete forward. He could hold it up. He was skillful. He scored goals. Great in the, brilliant in the air. Sort of famous diving header for Italy against England in one game in a World Cup qualifier, actually, uh, 478. Um, brilliant player. Paolo Rossi played in 78, 82, and then he was in the squad for 86. Um, three goals in 78, six in 82. He's a joint highest scorer in Italian ever in World Cups with nine goals. He was the silver ball, won the silver ball as the second best player in the 1978 World Cup, won the golden ball for the best player in 1982, the Ballon d'Or in 1982, and the top scorer in 1982. He just got so hot. Uh, he he was, you know, when you think of the 1982 World Cup, he is what you do think of Paolo Rossi um, because he'd been out of the game for two years because uh, of the Totonero scandal, uh, came back with virtually no playing time. He'd only played a few minutes in the last couple of games of the season, 
uh, came into the World Cup, was awful in the group stages, totally out of rhythm. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the last three games of the tournament, he scored six goals, including the hat-trick against Brazil. Um, just just an incredible, incredible story. An amazing person as well. Very greatly missed. He died a couple of years ago. going to be his second anniversary, I think, next week or the week after. Amazing, amazing player. Legend. Uh, absolute legend. And just a, such a clinical box-in-the-box uh, striker. Uh, then we've got, talking of those, boxes in the box, Salvatore Scalacci, Toto Scalacci who came out of nowhere in 1990. He was the top scorer of Italian 96 goals. Um, scored, um, scored, yeah, scored in every every game. That, no, every game except for the second game in, in 1990. Um, and yeah, he kind of disappeared pretty much <laughs> soon, as, soon after that World Cup. He didn't really, never really hit the heights again. But yeah, that was a, that was a great story. The, the, the little Sicilian with the real... Vein burst in celebrations, popping out of his, his his face, and yeah, he was an amazing story. Roberto Baggio, who was the other breakout star of, of Italian nineteen, played at 1998. Um, for many, the greatest Italy national team player ever. Um, nine goals in total, same as Rossi scored in all three of those tournaments. Scored one of the greatest goals in World Cup history against Czechoslovakia in that 1990 uh, World Cup. He single-handedly really almost took Italy to the well took Italy to the final in '94. He pretty much single-handedly. I mean, Italy were about to go out in the second round against uh, Nigeria. They were one 0 down. Badger scored in the last minute to take them to extra time. Then he scored a penalty in extra time. Then he scored the last-minute winner against Spain in the quarter-final. Then he scored two goals, both goals against Bulgaria to win two-one in the, the semi-final. And then, unfortunately. He was injured for the final. He played, but he was playing with pain painkillers uh, and injections, and and he could, and he struggled, and he was a struggle for him. And then, sadly, he missed the penalty partly because of that uh, in the shootout. He came back four years later at the age of thirty-one, and he was still brilliant in ninety-eight. And he was so agonising. He had that volley against France, which almost put Italy through. Um, so Baggio. Then you got Christian Vieri scored again nine goals, five goals in. Um, 98, four in 2002, would have been more, but they got cheered. He was just an absolute monster, a beast, uh, just just a huge, powerful guy, uh, but, you know, fantastic left foot, great in the air. Would have gone to 2006 as well, but he was he was injured on, that maybe was a blessing because he was past his best by then. Uh, and then finally, Francesco Totti, who I think sometimes gets unfairly criticised for his Italy career, but actually when you look at his numbers, he actually got seven assists in um, World Cup history in his, in his two tournaments in 2002 and 2006, which is one of the most in the history of the World Cup. There's only, I think there's only, I think Maradona's got the record, I think, with nine or 10, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, you know, he's, he's right up there. Uh, and he got four in 2006, and plus he scored that winner against Australia. And he was only half fit in 2006 because he played with metal plates in his ankles after he, he had it broken uh, a few months before the tournament. And he still played an important role in Italy, in Italy winning. So there's your forwards. Nima, who you got? Um, I think, um, like I, Roberto Baggio is my favourite Italian player of all time. I think he's the greatest Italian footballer of all time. But you can't go past Paolo Rossi. Uh, what he did, the way he won it, um, you know, golden balls, ballon doors, top goal scorer, and to win it, nah, it has to be Paolo Rossi. Has to be. Um, you didn't, um, yeah, and, and of course Silvio Piola for what he's done as well. But I mean, it was. I, I think it's so difficult because it was a different kind of football back then. It's impossible mm. to. Also, we haven't seen them play. It's impossible. Yeah. I, 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 I can't pick any of the players from the 1930s because yeah. I literally haven't watched them play. I've only seen the highlights. 
very yeah. small highlights. It's impossible to say. I, I think you could. The other person would be Gigi Riva because he was, you know, because of who yeah. he is. Um, but no, it, it has to be Paolo Rossi for me. The impact he has is no one comes close. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's bad. For me, it's Badger or Rossi. But um, you know, I, I yeah, it's, it's tough out Badger and Rossi. Because um, Bat Rossi was, like I said, he was the second best player in one tournament and the best player in another. <laughs> you mm. know, so how can you go past that? But then Badger was brilliant in three tournaments. Is uh, I'm going to go for Rossi just because he won the thing. Yeah, it has to I'm be. Go for Rossi, it has to but, be. Uh, Badger is just a deserved. Um, and Italy's best World Cup player ever. Oh, it's got to be Badger. That 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 is. Then we're just going on individual talent, and I don't think Italy has ever produced a better footballer than Roberto Badger. It's just to play for in the World Cup. I mean, I, I know people talk about the missing a penalty, but that's not why Italy lost. Italy wouldn't even be in that final if it wasn't for Roberto Baggio. Mm. And it's strange because it was a really good Italy side, but they were dreadful. I mean, the game against Ireland is probably, not, if not the worst, and one of the worst Italy performances I have ever seen. Um, and he managed to drag this life, lifeless Italy side, despite the abundance of quality, mm. uh, to a final all by his own, all on his own. And, and despite remember, getting on with Saki as well. Yeah, Saki exactly. Didn't yeah. get on. Saki took him off. Took him against, off. Against, against Norway when yeah. he went down to 10 men. Yeah. Casalaghi up there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, he still, he still, you know, um, and he, and he still managed to, to take them all the way. And, and he showed leadership and, and he, now nah, look, Baggio's the greatest Italian footballer of all time. It's as simple as that for me. Mm. Yeah, okay, I'm going to go Badger as well. Again, that might sound contradictory. How can you pick the best forward, Rossi, and the best World Cup player? Ever well, I look at it like this. What Rossi did, Rossi is, is, I mean, if you look at the impact in the, I'm not talking about, for me, I don't look at it. I look at what they actually did, the impact they had on Italy and how they performed in the World Cup. And Rossi won, you know, Rossi won Italy the World Cup. He scored goals that, you know, again, the, how did the, the impact they had in their heyday? And Paolo Rossi, was just you know he, what he did, and and the same with um, with uh, Gigi Riva. Those two are just head and shoulders above everyone else in terms of delivering results. But if we're just talking the individual talent, uh, Baggio, Baggio all the way. Mm, okay, let's go with that. Uh, and best World Cup coach. So we got Pozzo, who <laughs> Giampiero Pozzo, who won two tournaments in the thirties, thirty four and thirty eight. Uh, successive, which is still uh, the still the only person to win successive World Cups. I'm, I think I'm correct in saying. Um, Ferruccio Valcareggi, who was World Cup coach in 1974, took Italy to the final in 70. Excuse me. Then we've got Enzo Bietzo, was coaching the great 78 and 82 teams. You know what? For many people, the 78 team was better than the 82 team. Um, and to be honest with you, that I can see what I can see the argument for that. Uh, and then he, 86 was a bit of a lippy 2010, you know, where kind of too loyal to the old guard and, and, and you know, time had passed him by. But, um, yeah, obviously won the World Cup in 82. Asilio Vicini, 1990 World Cup, um, took them to the semis, should have won it. Arrigo Sacchi, 94, took them to the final. And then Marcello Lippi, of course, 2006, won the World Cup and then had the disappointment in 2010. Um, who, who are you going for? This is This is... This is difficult. This is difficult um, because we've not yet seen Roberto Mancini there, and I think he could, 
if if for me, if Mancini wins the World Cup with Italy, then I think he's the greatest Italian manager of all time. I don't think anyone comes close to him um, because the revol- the way that he did. I mean, let's remember when when Saki, you know, Saki had an amazing talent, plethora of talent. Um, Beardsot, um, all these guys, they had fantastic talent. Lippi, I mean. That just look at that squad. They're all legends. Everyone in that squad, pretty much ninety percent of the players are in, are an institution. But Mancini, when look at what he took over and what where Italy were and where he brought them. Sure, they missed the World Cup, but I mean, a, if he wins the World Cup, then I think, or if he takes them to a final of a World Cup and even loses, I, I still, I'll, I'll hold Mancini higher than everyone else. But until that happens, look. Lippi, Lippi, Lippi 06, Berzot, uh, 82. Pick, take your pick. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm going for Berzot purely because he had two, to- two great tournaments mm. to, to, to Lippi's one. So he, he gets over it from over Lippi for that. Lippi had the one great tournament in 06, but then let's be honest, 2010 was a total disaster, and he, and he was dreadful. Lippi, he was, he was loyal to so many players that were past their best. He played really boring football, rigid football with no identity or patterns of play. A bit like Allegri football, actually, in 2010. Uh, really bad, really bad football. Um, and didn't develop any players. And, and you know, so I think, you know, I think Bietzot, even though 86 was, was, was quite a disaster in a similar way for Italy, he did have the 78 and 82, which were two amazing tournaments for Italy. Um, then you got Valcareggi, who did great and gets the final in 70, but then 74 was a disaster. Um, you got Saki, who was amazing at Milan, but I always I was never a fan of him for Italy, to be honest with you. Uh, and then Piccini, I think, underperformed. Was that Italy team in 90 was so good, and I think his tactics against against uh, Argentina, where he like tried to hold on to the lead at one 0 you know, against a really poor Argentina team, you know, cost Italy. Uh, and Pozzo, I'd like to say, I and mean, Pozzo statistically is the best Italy coach because he won two World Cups uh, in successive. But again, you know, I, I can't judge, I can't judge uh, him because I haven't seen any of the games, and I, I really, do you know, what I mean? it's just impossible. It feels wrong to just discard football, but you know, from that time. But I, I, I can't base no, it on anything I've seen. You know, so the thing is, I think we should. I really believe that because the game has changed so much, it really is a different game. Uh, I think you really can divide football into three eras. You know the 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 pre fifty eight era, the fifty eight to seventy eight era, and then from then to ninety, and then ninety four and onwards, um, because the game has changed so much, the rules have changed so much, the everything has changed so much. So, I think it's um, yeah, I, I look at it like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. Um, let's finish this off. Um, best. Italy World Cup eleven of all time. So pick your eleven from all these names. Um, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you time to do yours. Um, oh. I've just been doing mine now while while uh, while you've been speaking. So I'm gonna actually. I'm gonna go for a five three two because most of Italy's talent is uh, is in defence, and so I want to have uh, more. I want everything to be more condensed in the defence. So I'm gonna go for a five three two. Um, my goalkeeper. Again, it could be Buffon, it could be Zoff. It's, it, it is absolutely impossible to choose between the two of them, um, but I'll go Buffon. Um, then in defence, I'm going to go Gentile, right back. Then the three centre-backs, I'm going to go Baresi, Cannavaro and Scherer. 
and then I'm going to go Maldini at left back. There's so many defenders that that could get in. I mean, I feel bad letting, leaving out Facchetti. I leave. I feel bad leaving out Cabrini. I mean, there's there's so many that I could have in there. But those are my five in defence. Then in midfield, I think Pirlo and Tardelli absolutely like have to be in there uh, as the two centre midfielders. Then I mean, I'm playing a, a system here without wingers, um, but. Bruno Conti has to be in it, so I don't care. He he can play in he can play in centre midfield. <laughs> like, he has to be in it. There's no way I'm leaving him out. Um, so Bruno Conti is in my third central midfielder, and then in attack, um, I, I think it has to be it has to be Baggio and and Paolo Rossi. I think they have to be that. Those have to be the two, the only ones that could maybe Christian Vieri has an argument, but. Like his tournaments, Italy got to the last sixteen and the quarterfinals, so he never played in a in a game, you know, or scored in a game past the quarterfinals onwards. So, you know, the others did. And Gigi Riva, I guess, yeah, you could make an argument for him, but he only actually only scored three World Cup goals, say only. So, um, you know, so I, I think yeah, he's below he's below those two. So yeah, Badjo and Badjo and Rossi up front. Mm. I, I've pretty much got the same. The only difference is I would I would have moved Maldini to the middle because I want to have Facchetti as a left wing back uh, mm. because he was outstanding there. So I would probably move Shirea out and have Baresi, Cannavaro, Maldini and Facchetti and Gentile to the right. Uh, and as for Pirlo, Tardelli, Conti, yeah, I can live with that. I can live with that. Um, and Baggio, Rossi, it's hard to argue with that. Yeah, yeah, really it certainly is. is. Would be some that would be some struggles. I bet that and those two would have worked really well together. I actually, think so would have been well. would have actually been a perfect perfect <laughs> they really strike partnership. Have. They really yeah. would have. Badger is the really... support striker. Rossi Oof. is the, the striker making his oh runs. Badger putting him through. That would be <laughs> that would be yeah. Uh, would be a For cheat sure. code. Some would yes, say. Yes, it would. Some would say. <laughs> some would say. Okay, right. We've gone on a little bit. So let's just let's just. Um, you know what? You know what? We, we, we're way over. I was going to do a segment today on discussing the World Cup and the, the end of match day two and which teams have impressed us most, which have disappointed us most. Let's park that. Let's do it on Thursday. Let's do it on Thursday's show because the, 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 the group stages will be, will be virtually over. We'll only have, yeah. I think, two matches left. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And looking at the groups, I think Brazil, hopefully, I mean, we're recording this on Monday, um, before Brazil play their, their game, the chances are that Brazil and maybe Portugal will have qualified, in which case, you know, we'll, we'll almost know everyone that's through, basically, um, you know, all the main teams that are through. So let, let's leave that there. And we, what we will do is we want to discuss which teams have impressed us the most and which teams have disappointed us the most and pick out some some main themes from from each team. Um, so we'll do that. We'll do that at the end of the group stages. That'll be a good good cut-off point. Um, but one, one World Cup topic um, I do want to, well, I'm not going to discuss it. This is just going to be a. It's just going to be Nimmer going off on one. Is no. uh, Jurgen Klinsmann's comments on on Iran because he really has angered and upset and insulted an entire nation really with his his original quotes, his original comments about Iran after their game against Wales, right? Yeah, it was after Where the he, game against Wales. He basically says it's in Iran's culture to 
basically cheat, right? Yeah, to waste no, time, he says, to dive. He's talk, yeah, yeah, he's talking about, I mean, I've got the full quote here. He says, um, he starts by saying, it's not by coincidence, it's part of their culture, it's how they play, they work the referee, they work the linesman and the fourth official, they're constantly in their ear. There were a lot of incidents we didn't see. This is their culture, they take you off your game. Um, and then he goes on a rant about uh, Kairosh, uh, the, the coach, um, saying that, um, you know, he's uh, he says Car- Carlos fits really well with the national team and their culture. He failed in South America with Colombia and then failed to qualify with Egypt. And he came in right before the World Cup Iran, where he worked for a long time. Uh, it would have been different. And then he goes off about on the referee as well. Uh, saying that you know this was that the referee would not have allowed whatever Iran did, it would have been a different with a different referee. Um, they have five people around the referee. This is not uh, going to play into the hands of Wales. Now, as this tirade is going on on BBC, they're showing images from the game, and the irony is is in all of this is that the images show exactly the opposite. They're showing. Welsh players fouling Iranian players. So it's quite obvious that they had decided beforehand that this was the narrative they're going to go with, the, the, the facts be damned. And so what they're saying and talking about does not is not reflected in the images being shown. Obviously, Wales had a player sent off um, uh, for a very blatant red card on the goalkeeper, uh, Hennessy. Uh, so uh, it was it was just... It was, it's just, you know, and Kairosh, of course, replies to this. Uh, he puts out a post on his social media saying that, um, you, dear Jürgen, you took the initiative to call me Carlos, so I believe it's only proper I call you Jürgen, right? Even not knowing me personally, you question my character with a typical prejudiced judgment of superiority. No matter how much I can respect what you did inside the pitch, those remarks about Iranian culture, Iranian national team, and my players are a disgrace to football. No one can hurt our integrity if it is not at our level, of course. Even saying so, we would like to invite you as our guest to come to our national team camp, socialize with Iranian players, and learn from them about the country, the people of Iran, the poetry, the art, the algebra, the millennial old Persian culture, and also listen from our players how much they love and respect football. As an American-German we understand your no support. No problem. And despite your outrageous remarks on BBC trying to undermine our efforts, efforts, sacrifices and skills, we promise you that we will not produce any judgment regarding your culture, roots and background and what you will always be welcome to our family. At the same time, we just want to follow with, with full attention what will be the decision of FIFA regarding your position as a member of Qatar 2022 Technical Study Group, because obviously we expect you to resign before visiting our camp. Now, afterwards, of course, um, then then yesterday on BBC, um, Klinsman um, goes, is, is on, um, is on the B- Sorry? It was with Gary Lineker. Gary it? Lineker, Rio Ferdinand, and I think Mauricio Pochettino sitting there as well. And he he's he's on BBC. Uh, he he goes on BBC Breakfast Show and says that his comments have been taken out of context. He didn't mean it. Uh, he didn't. He he wasn't saying that. And he said. Um, and and he went on to talk about that uh, there was um, uh, that that he was. Uh, <laughs> That he was saying, um, there was stuff really taken out of context. Uh, I will try. I will call him and try to calm things down. Um, 
I was uh, he, I was describing their emotional way of doing things, which is actually admirable in a certain way. He says on on BBC in the in the earlier in the morning, the whole bench lives the game. They're jumping up and down, and Carlos is a very emotional coach. He's constantly on the sidelines trying to give his players all the energy and direction. Um, he took it completely wrong, he tells Gary Lineker. What I described was the emotional impact they had from the bench, the players jumping up and talking to everyone on the sidelines. He took it the wrong way. He thought I criticized him, which was not the case. It's no problem at all. Maybe they took it wrong because they see me as the former USA coach, and so maybe they feel a little bit provoked, which was not the case. I mean... And then, of course, everyone is laughing at him because... That's that's not what happened. Uh, he said four times about how this is their culture, their culture, their culture, claiming that there is a there <laughs> that there is a connection between where where one's ethnicity is from and 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 gamesmanship, as mm. as they try to call it, which is ridiculous. The, the, the it's kind of a bit of, I mean that that that's that's just not true. And 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 the, and the game itself should prove that. Uh, if if you were actually watching it, um, and and the fact that he would say that is is you know is incredible. It's borderline racist, if not racist, nice. to 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 take to say that one a, a certain culture is just like that based on one game. And the reason why I say one game is because he does not even know anything about Iranian football before the World Cup. He was on TV saying that he he had watched Iran because he'd seen them in the Arab Cup. <laughs> he doesn't know anything about Iranian football. Nothing, absolutely nothing, and that's okay. You don't need to know everything about every team in the world. That's fine. You don't know what you're talking about. But to make these sweeping statements, and then when somebody, and, and misspeaking, and then when somebody calls you out and said, hang on a minute, this is out of order, you then turn around and gaslight them and say that, no, not only did I not mean that, but you, you're the ones with the problems because you, you're thinking that I'm, I'm coming from an American perspective which nobody had, to be honest, nobody even remembers or even cares that he was the coach of the United States. It's got nothing to do with this. And then, of course, that landed really flatly. And then today he goes out on Twitter and he tries the third time uh, he tries to, uh, to, to, to clean this mess up. And he says, my comments on the Wales v. Iran game were purely football related. Unfortunately, this was taken out of a footballing context. I have many Iranian friends and was always full of compliments for their people, culture and history. I wish them only the best for the tournament. So he, so he goes and, and, and basically goes, I can't be racist because I've got a black friend stick. Th that's literally what he's saying. And it's just, he's just digging himself deeper and deeper and deeper. And to be honest with you, I'm fed up with it. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of his nonsense. I'm tired of his sideshow. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want. I, I don't care about it. I don't care about his nonsense. He said something really stupid. I don't think Jürgen Klinsmann is a racist. I want to make that absolutely clear. I don't think so at all. But he did say something that was at least, at the very minimum, borderline racist, which can happen to anyone. Which can anyone can say that can express themselves poorly or un, or ambiguously and come off as saying something they didn't mean. That's perfectly fine. If we were to execute every person who said something stupid in their life or or said something poorly that in a way that they didn't mean it, they it came out wrong. There'd be no humans left. Yeah. You know, it's 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 as simple as that. But what I do have a problem with is this this notion that you just can't admit that. Own it like an adult. Stop placing, stop deflecting, stop placing blame on others, stop gaslighting. Just come out and said, look, this is what I meant. 
this is not this is what I said. I can see that there is a disconnect between the two. I meant this. I understand that people uh, interpreted like that. That was not my intention. I apologize for expressing myself poorly, but I was never I never meant this. Finished. Done. Over. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. more to say. But yeah. But the thing that but but the thing that annoys me the most is Gary Lineker and Real Ferdinand, who have been virtue signaling and politicizing everything under the sun about this World Cup for the last 12 years, and everyone else in that studio, both of these occasions where this was aired, not once did they push back to him talking about culture. Not one time. In fact, Gary Lineker asked him, can you understand why? The most softball question I have ever heard. Can you understand why the Iranians might have been offended? I mean... Just do one. I mean, it's so pathetic. They are—they really are a spineless, supine cabal of cowards. That's all they are. And it's so pathetic. Can you imagine if Klinsman had said this about Israel? Saying that no. it's in their culture, it's in Jewish culture. He would have been, he would have been thrown out. And he would have been right to have been thrown out, because that's a really anti-Semitic thing to say. No, but of course, the, that's the point, isn't it? Is that it, it's, and this is what drives me crazy. Is that it's there? There are some areas that are just no-go areas where there's other there's other things that can be said, um, which are just totally accepted, like it's like it's totally fine, you know. And that definitely is the case with uh, the Arab world for sure, Muslim world for sure, even the Italians, Italian, Latino, Mediterranean, yep. South American, you know that there's certain Mexicans. Uh, if we're talking about, say, United States, for example, um, you know, is um, the, the, these things are these these things are, are accepted. It's fine to to call Italians divers and South Americans exactly. divers cheats. You know, it's totally it's fine. It's yeah. a trope. It's not true. If that were true 30, 40, 50 years ago, which I highly doubt anyway, but look, it's it's just not true because I mean, one of every team. But team sport is about winning and everyone will do anything to win because otherwise you don't reach that kind of level, that winning mentality that all world-class athletes have, this mm. kind of never-say-die attitude. They, in the heat of the moment, they, 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 they might cross the line for what's morally right, right? And they, mm. and they all want to win. But to, but to connect that with a specific culture is just, I mean, yeah, get out of here. That's it's ridiculous. Italy, Italians are no more cheaters than Swedes are. Mm. Why? 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 The lack of pushback and challenging. Here. That's exactly yeah. it. That, that that was that. I mean that that that's bad as well because that's the one thing you, at the very least you would expect from from a from a public broadcaster like the BBC. You would expect them to 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 not take sides or or to at least provide both sides of the argument if someone's going to going to provide the one side like be totally one-sided like Klinsman was you're going to get someone who will offer the other side of the argument or at least push back and didn't even get that you didn't you didn't even get that at all um, but you know I don't expect anything less from Lineker I think he's the most fake person uh, in the world of football that, that there is um, and every single person that I have met in the industry has only had bad things to say about him for that reason how fake he is how he tries to paint himself as a man of the people, as somebody, and and everybody that I know that's ever had any dealings with him has just have all said the same thing about him, you know. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me with him. He's a virtue. He's just a virtue signaling prick. 
basically. That, that's what he is. And, no, what's he really what, is. and what's also ironic about it, what's also ironic about it is that uh, <laughs> Jürgen Klinsmann during his career and Gary Lineker. Thank you. But especially I mean, Jürgen, Jürgen Klinsmann. Klinsmann, especially, Klinsmann was, the, was famed for being the, the, the biggest diver. I mean, he, he, he really did bring diving. If, if, we wanna, if we wanna go down the trope uh, uh, route, in terms of bringing diving, you know, it's a thing we used to get in the thirty years, thirty years ago, when 25, 30 years ago, when when the foreigners, you got the foreign influx of, of players into the Premier League, for example, um, that uh, you know used to always used to be one of the tropes used to be oh, you know, all these foreigners they bring in diving into the Premier League, and like Klinsman was one of them, and Klinsman actually, funnily enough, he actually had a celebration where he actually yeah. started. When he stopped, when he played for Tottenham and he scored his first goal, and it was actually quite funny to be fair. He celebrated by doing a Klinsman dive. He dived, and it became a, a, one of the celebrations. I remember when I was a kid, you know, we used to do it. You know, it became like one of the celebrations to do when he scored a goal. Oh, let's do a Klinsman dive celebration. You know, and he used to, used to get it in video games as well, and, and then things like that. You know, so Klinsman even you know played on it himself. Like Klinsman was a prolific diver. He dived in the nineteen ninety World Cup final. Um, to um, you know, and well, throughout the 1990 World Cup, he was you know he was a prolific diver. Uh, I remember it was a game against Czechoslovakia in the quarterfinal, um, where where he dived to win to win. It was a non-existent. Well, penalty. I think that was a penalty. That was the only penalty he won in that World Cup that actually was one. But if you look at the Argentina thing, yes, this is a reckless challenge. But his reaction when he throws himself like a like a he does like that breakdance thing on, on like a worm. When he the, the reaction on the floor. Actually, that, that, was it Klinsman or Voller that won the penalty in the final? I always get mixed oh, up. No, that, oh no, Voller won the won the penalty in the final. Yeah, yeah, which was yeah. which was never a penalty in a million years either. Yeah, that was. Um, yeah. It was it was a dive but, as well, you know. But, but yeah, regardless, Klinsman was 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 famed for being the biggest diver in world, biggest cheat if you want to call it cheat. Well, both him and Fuller were known for dive for diving. Yeah. Like yeah. again, everyone has done this. This is yeah, not that's a why Rykard spat at him. <laughs> yeah, that was that, that entire incident. Yeah, no, but look, this is what I mean. Everyone's everyone has dived. Lineker himself, you know, when he wasn't defecating in his uh, de- defecating <laughs> his pants in in Sicily. Well, he did. He dived for both penalties against yeah. Cameroon. They yeah. were going out of the World Cup. They were two one down to Cameroon, and uh, Lineker dived for both penalties. I actually pointed that out to him on Twitter one time yeah, I remember. Um, during a during a discussion, and he blocked me. Yeah, uh, with, no, I mean, with an arrogant with an arrogant with an arrogant uh, tweet. He's he's you know he said something like, "Oh." You're not allowed to say uh, something like that to me. You're blocked, <laughs> something mm. like that. Just like fucking, weren't even following you anyway, mate. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, don't like the guy at all. No, I mean, and also, I mean, this is the thing, though. Um, it's I got I got to be honest. The, 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 the World Cup is always. I've, I'm, I'm always going to watch it, but I I got to say, this World Cup. The I mean, of course, I, I care when Iran play. But other than that, I have not enjoyed this World Cup. And to be honest, they've kind of ruined the World Cup for me. Um, I, everyone, this this entire narrative around this World Cup oh, yeah, has yeah. been has ruined it for me. This this hypo- hypocritical, one sided, sanctimonious, holier than thou nonsense from the mainstream Western pro NATO media. Let's be honest, um, has ruined it for me. The virtue signalling has been too much. The hypocrisy has been too much. Um, and and it's it's just ruined it for me. But I got to say, I was speaking to um, 
There's yesterday. a simple solution to that. Don't don't follow it on the mainstream media. Well, <laughs> you know? no, but yes, I know. But even when you try not to watch it, you see it on social media. This is the thing. I didn't. I don't. I don't watch the BBC, and yet this came up, and I saw it, and it's it's just this non-stop barrage of bullshit, and it, and it has ruined the World Cup. I watch every game because it's part of you know prepare, pre, you know part of my job, but I don't enjoy it. And, and and I care about how Iran play, but no, I they've ruined. Honest yeah. to God, this this World Cup, the international football has been ruined for me, and I know many people feel the same way. But yeah. I got to say, I was talking yesterday to um, to a friend uh, and, and a listener of, of this podcast, um, someone who I got to know via when I was studying in Wales via another. I, 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 when I studied law in Wales, I became friends with with another one of our listeners uh, there, and, and is, Jason is his is his name, and, and his his friends. Um, and and Chris, uh, he lives in America now, and he we were we were talking on WhatsApp, and he was asking me how I felt about everything. We hadn't spoke, we hadn't catched up in a long while, and he he lives in America, and and I and he asked me about everything that's been going on, and we had a long conversation. I told him how how fed up I am with everything, and he, but he did say, he did say he he did send he sent me a message that I that I that I asked him if I can read up because I really, it really resonated with me and it made me happy because there's another aspect of this as well that one doesn't always consider. And his response was, I thought it was an utter disgrace that the BBC didn't show the opening ceremony. As my dad said, I pay money for the BBC. I want to make my own mind up. Um, and as you said, in the US, as for the US hosting the World Cup in 2026, more people died in the Iraq war because of the British and US armies than Qatar could ever dream of killing. However, the only good great thing for me is how engaged my son has been. He's watched every game, researched every country. He now wants to visit Morocco now uh, after the game one day. So maybe take solace in that, that young kids in America and all over the world are watching this World Cup in the Middle East and wanting to visit both the Middle East and North Africa. He's got his sticker book. He's got his iPad out for every game. There's no politics for him. He's just been absorbing the World Cup like we did when we were kids. For example, back in World Cup 94, mate, I cried because Italy missed a penalty. I've never cared about Italy like that before. I mean, that to me is what the World Cup is about. Yeah, it's what the World Cup is about. Look, I, I see it both sides. I, I do see both sides. I mean, you know, we, 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 we shouldn't have free reign that, that you know, countries that have that have got human rights, you know, guilty of human rights abuses should be able to, you know, host a tournament without anything being highlighted about it. Absolutely not. I mean, take the 1978 World Cup in, in Argentina, for example, where you had a fascist military dictatorship who were, who were quite literally throwing, you know, hundreds of, 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 um, of, uh, of political prisoners into the Rio de la Plata river every single day during the tournament, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, you know, it, this this stuff should be highlighted. I think it's just what what has got people is it's the the hypocrisy and the the selection that how selective it has been um, in in the the Western mainstream media, which has rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. And you know, I think also you know there is also an element of you know once you do open the door um, to this, it, it, it can you know where do you stop? Uh, I mean, I'm just I'm just on Twitter now and I'm just seeing. Uh, that an Iranian journalist has just asked the United States manager about uh, uh, about a naval ship that the the um, asking him why doesn't the you know why are you not uh, asking your United States government to remove a naval ship a U.S. naval ship that's surrounding Iran 
<laughs> you know? Well, this is what it's happens. Like, I mean, but this is I mean? this is the natural result of that because yeah. when the when the BBC and all these US uh, U and Western backed Western based media ask these questions of Carlos Queiroz and Mehdi Taremi as if they're responsible for what yeah. happens politically That's in Iran, yeah. well, then you're going to give that back to you. Why are you so outraged and think it's ludicrous when it's asked back to you? But when you put ask other people that. Then it, it seems like the most normal thing ever. Then it's freedom of the press and freedom of this and freedom of that. Well, you see, look, shoes go on both feet. And also the United States men's national team, the U.S. Soccer Federation, decided to change Iran's flag the other day in a post, which is in complete violation of all of FIFA's rules. You don't get to decide what flags you use for what country because you don't agree with their politics. I mean, it's it's just... It's ridiculous. Either the rules apply for everyone or they don't apply to anyone. It's as simple yeah. as that. And this is what it is. This is the this is what I mean. It's this entitlement. It's this hypocritical entitlement that that I'm above it all. Do you know what I mean? Like for example, I saw another journalist quote tweeting um there was a video going around of Saudi Arabian sp- minister of sport giving a very heart it was a very beautiful moment he was talking to a saudi arabian player after the game against poland uh which they lost and he made a mistake um and he was having a heart to heart with him and this journalist quote tweeted that and said oh politics is now okay in sport well um for the last if i remember correctly angela merkel referred to the german national team as her boys for a decade that was okay Oh, Barack Obama phoned Tim Howard after they lost to Belgium, uh, and the and the phone call was published everywhere. Is that not? I mean, what do you look? If it's okay for them, it's okay for the others. I mean, it's just it's this sign sense of entitlement and selective uh, outrage that is just so unbearable. It's mm. absolutely unbearable, and it it just goes through all of everything they do in in this mainstream media bubble in the in 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 the West, and it's no one's buying it. Everyone has seen through it. I think, if anything, as exhausting as this nonsense has been, this World Cup, it's been a great unmasking. All the masks have fallen. All the illusions and bullshit has been completely like everyone can see it clearly now. And what this is about, and it's never been about human rights. It's never been about migrant workers. It's about a hit smear job and a hit job on on other cultures. Because if they really, really cared about uh, human rights violations, then why would Qatar be in or Saudi be a military and strategic geopolitical ally of the United States and the UK? <laughs> you know what I mean? You sell weapons to these countries, so they're your ally allies but you don't want them at the table because you look down on them in certain aspects i mean it, it just makes no sense whatsoever there's no coherence there's no there's so many it's not just one standard it's that they have so many different standards for different people and it's just it's just unbearable and it's just no one wants to and everyone sees through it and it's just pathetic really yeah yeah okay let's move on now um Iran versus USA. Um, we'll discuss that on Thursday. Uh, haven't got time for it now. <laughs> well, no, we can't discuss it on Thursday because it's being played tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. We'll discuss the. the, the oh, the after. game you mean? You wanted yeah, to preview? We'll okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, sorry, we'll sorry. Discuss it after, yeah. Yeah, sorry. yeah. Okay. Um, right. Just a couple of segments before we finish. So, first of all, uh, two club-related segments. First of all, Jakub Kiwiel, who is a Spezia centre-back playing for Poland at the World Cup. Having a having a great season for Spezia and having a, has had a really good start to the World Cup with with Poland as well. They're they're looking in good 
uh, in a good place to qualify for the for the next round. Now, Juventus, Milan, and Napoli are all interested in in signing Kiwi, or also some Premier League clubs looking at him as well. So, as we do now and again, we do profiles on on some of these players. So, Nima, what can you tell us about about Kiwi? Well, I, I think he's had a he's had a World Cup that's on par with the the, the season he's had at Spezia. Um, he's uh, he's a very young. He's only twenty two years old. Um, he's born February fifteenth, two thousand. He'll turn twenty three soon, um, and he's really really exploded onto the onto the onto the scene this year. Uh, for 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 both club and 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 country, especially uh, especially club, um, he he's uh, I've I've seen these links and I understand them. But um, he, I mean, he moved to um, to Spezia in in twenty in the summer of twenty twenty one, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and he um, he he's he's been really really good there. Uh, I mean, his youth team career. He was born. He was born in Tishy in Poland, but he had a youth career at Anderlecht. Um, uh, but then after that, he was sold to MSK Zielina, uh, and and he played there for for about two two seasons. And then he went. He's he's gone on to Spezia, where he's been a mainstay, uh, especially this season. Um, so uh, he he he's been he's been he's been one of the one of the uh, you know together with Sabiri I think he's been one of those and and Fajoli and many others I think he's been one of those even though Sabiri's twenty five years old but he's been if you're talking about players and Providel I mean those who've really broken out this season I think he's he's amongst those who've been absolutely outstanding um, and I've really enjoyed watching him play he's he's, a, he's tough to play against he's he's on he really he's he's a good man marker and and he knows how to annoy strikers without going over that line um so no it's it's a really interesting player i can understand the links to milan and um and to uh Juve. yeah yeah and and he plays as a he plays as a center back and he i mean he's playing for a team that is let's be honest it's not a good team no uh, they're not at all they're, um, really they're, they're, they're a poor team but he but he still managed to he still managed to stand out, um, you know, even among I mean, even among these players. I remember watching uh, him against uh, Napoli in, in a game um, that, that Napoli won one nil with a with a with a ninetieth minute, not eighty ninth minute goal from Raspadori. Now in that game, he was man of the match. He made tackle after tackle after block after block. He was he was absolutely magnificent in that game. He must have saved at least about four or five four or five goals. Uh, in in that game with, with with last with last cast blocks or or interceptions he he seems to read the game really really well he he spots the dangers the danger really well he's, he's a, and like I said he's a tough guy and um he's actually second in in Serie A for 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 interceptions for board interceptions he's got 127 interceptions in Serie A this season only Corey Gunter of Verona has more with um with 129 he's got Kim Min Jae on 120 and then Roger Ibanez and Wallace uh, have got 113 each. So he's he's second in in the whole in the whole of Serie A. And his yeah his numbers are his his numbers in general are are, are just you know among all the kind of like the key attributes for defenders in Serie A. Are, he's you know he's right up there. Um, so definitely that's why the big clubs are looking at him. And you know you look at Milan, they need to find a, a replacement for for Simon Kier. He's getting old. Um, mm. Uh, now and I think his body's starting to decline a little bit. He's losing his pace. 
Um, and then, you know, Juventus as well. Bonucci is getting old uh, and they, they need to find someone certainly at, the, at this, well, I was even saying January potentially, um, you know. So, you know, and, and Napoli as well, uh, uh, I've been linked with him. And they, I think, you know, we, as we said earlier, I think that... Uh, uh, Napoli needs someone uh, as well, yeah. and you know they 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 they've got two great first choice centre backs, but their backups are Juan Jesus, who you know they'll probably look to replace at the end of the season, and then okay, Ostergaard, he's young, he he could develop, but they definitely need one. So uh, I can see why they want him, and I think he's somebody that Lewandowski is a big fan. Lewandowski's spoken about him, that how much he how much he likes him, and and yeah, he he prospects a player to be a first choice player for Poland in the World Cup. Pretty impressive. That shows you definitely shows you his qualities. No, he really does, and he's been. I think he's been really good as well uh, in the World Cup for for Poland. Um, and I know that Spurs are looking at him as well. Uh, you, uh, no, this is this is a really this is a really exciting player. Mm. Okay, just before we get to finish with Badger and Prem face of the week. Um, so our friends at, at Sempre Inter. Oh, sorry, Sempre Milan. Correction, I should say, uh, Oli Fischer. Uh, and and the lads now they did a they did a little segment on their on their podcast uh, recently last week or the week before um, do check them out sempramilan.com really great website um, who produce lots of lots of great uh, news and features and and they do a weekly podcast on on everything to do with AC Milan um, they did a segment on this on this topic I'm about to introduce now um, whereby um, Juventus have uh, are the one Italian team that have a second team. They play in the the, the Serie Serie C, and um, they, they, I think they started in was it 2018-19 season, and it's starting to reap some rewards for Juventus now. And they they're starting to produce some 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 good talented young players, uh, having not done so for a long time. Uh, you know we're seeing the likes of Miretti and and Fagioli and Sule and Illing Junior. Uh, and Devinto has gone off on loan, and you know we're starting to see some players that are coming through and are playing for the senior team and playing for other Serie A teams, and we didn't see that for a long time. Um, so now, um, and there was a, actually a conference in Turin at the weekend, um, which was um, which was uh, around the theme of this, you, you know, Juventus B team, uh, and the, the, and it was uh, uh, um, you know this was discussed about other Serie A teams launching. Second teams in 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 the in the in Italian football, uh, I think, and you know, Masara uh, was there from from Milan, uh, and uh, also the Liga the Liga president, um, I believe. And so, you know, other teams are starting to look at this now. Milan are one. I know from speaking to other people that Milan have been looking at this for a night for for a while. Um, so, you know, do you think that this is a good idea? Do you, do you think this is something that other Italian teams should do? And is it a way that maybe Italian football can catch up, like say with the likes of Spain and others that you know have been ahead in recent years on youth development? Do you think this is a way that this is good for Italian football if other teams do this? I think I think both yes and no. I think it's um, I think it's uh, I look at it like this. The, the, I'm worried about the smaller clubs uh, at grassroots, at the lower, at the lower leagues, at the grassroots level, because I think there is a real value that they produce locally and in their communities. And of course, if the bigger clubs are to start these like B and C teams, like Real Madrid and, and Barcelona have done uh, for years and decades, B and C teams in lower leagues, they um, they will 
you know, that that could hurt them because obviously they will be marginalized even further sporting wise. So I, I, I'm, yes and no. But on the other hand, I think it's good for players that are of that high quality that the young, that the these big teams buy them, that, that these big teams keep them in their organization and they get to train at that training ground with those players with you know in that environment and and the the big clubs can you know keep an eye on them and also to play first team football obviously at a lower level um but it's still good to have first to have them playing first team football so i think it's I, i'm i'm kind of seeing this both sides i can see upsides and downsides with both of it but um i would like if both i mean i would like to find a way where it doesn't hurt them too much, the smaller clubs, um, as well as, you know, for, I know, for example, in Sweden, what they've done, a way to do to get away from that is that they've got the bigger clubs in the top tier. They have, they, they kind of write, write these cooperation agreements with these lower league clubs, <clears throat> lower tier clubs, where they basically have revolving doors between them, where all the players that they can't, the young players that, they, that, that can't make it into the first teams in the, in the big clubs, they get sent automatically on loan to the smaller clubs. And, and they kind of have that kind of, uh, um, that cooperation. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I, I think there's both positives and negatives with this. Yeah, I think it depends who you look at it for. For the for the bigger teams, for, I mean, for Juventus, we are starting to see the fruits of, of the labour now. Um, I mean, the argument against it for Juventus is that, I mean, the team hasn't actually done very well. Still in Serie G, they've been kind of like mid-table for like a lot of that time. Uh, and, you know, they haven't really done very well. But, they, you know, we are starting to see some young players being produced. Um, whether that's a coincidence or not, um, I think it's difficult to, to, to argue that it can be. How can it be a coincidence if you know they haven't been producing anyone for a long time? Now they're actually starting to produce players. So, you know, I, I think that it must be working for Juventus um, in terms of production. Uh, it would be better if the Juventus second team were in Serie B because the quality is higher. The, the quality in Serie C isn't good. It's very, very bad quality, if I'm being totally honest. If you compare it, if I compare it to, say, England, if I compare it to, like, League, League One compared to Serie C, I mean, there's a, there's a huge there's a huge difference in, in quality. Same with, with the Championship to, to Serie B. I mean, it's absolutely massive. There's a gulf of class difference. But, you know, Serie B is more towards the level that we want the second teams and these young players to be playing. Uh, and But nevertheless, Serie C is still a higher level than the Primavera because, you know, anybody that's played youth football at any level... And has, and has suddenly jumped up from playing for teenage football under 18s or under 16s or under 15s, under 14s. Anyone that's played that level of football and then has suddenly, a few, you know, a year or two years later, suddenly had to jump up at the age of 16 or 18 and play men's football. They will know that the, the, the jump is, is huge. You're playing against people who are, you know, much more physically developed. You're still developing physically. You still haven't grown out into your body. Uh, you don't have the experience. You don't have the mental strength. You don't, you know, all those things don't have the experience is, is obviously massive um you know so so you know it is it is uh it you're playing at a higher level uh, and you're growing up faster as well but you're not playing at a level that's too high for you um so i think in a way it is good but it has to be there has to be synergy there and one of my biggest criticisms of of Italian football, and it's, this is one thing that for certain that Spain does brilliantly and Germany has done very well um is that you know they try and get 
their teams to all play in the same kind of way. They try and have an identity that they stick to. So if you're going to have a first team and then you're going to have a second team, try and get them playing in the same formations, the same style of play. You know, don't have the the first team playing in a a four a four three three fluent attacking possession based high pressing game, and then get the second team that uh, that's playing in Serie Chi playing in a in a, a three five two Catenaccio style of game. You know, because then the bridge that the pathway is, you know, you can't easily fit in from from the from one team into the, into the next team and step up. It's, it's a completely different style of play. Um, so that's something that you know. You, that needs to be sorted out as well, um, but you know, I think if, if uh, I, I think it's something that you know, if if the teams can can handle, you know, and obviously teams like Juventus, Milan, Inter, these teams have the financial resources to be able to 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 to, to run more, you know, run a B team. Uh, I, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. I do understand though the argument that that um, you know the the smaller teams, you know, why should Juventus? be able to just jump up the pyramid you know when there's all these teams struggling uh lower down why should Juventus just get to jump straight up to the third tier or fourth tier or fifth tier even or whatever you know so I think that there, there is there is that issue as well um and also the fact that you know what will it be like what will Serie B be like if let's say in five years time could could you imagine if Juventus B, Roma B, Inter B, Lazio B, Milan B. Like, can you imagine if like Serie B, like half the teams were all B teams of teams from Serie A? I mean, what would that be like for Italian football? Do, do you know what I mean? So there's that as well. No, absolutely. But I mean, in Spain, I think they don't they don't allow Barcelona B and Real Madrid A B to go up to the like they're allowed to, as high up as the second division, but they're not. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the second division. Yeah, but even the second division is would be ruined, wouldn't it? What I'm saying is, wouldn't say. I mean, what would Serie B be like if it was just half the teams with B teams of the big guns in Serie A? I mean, it would be a little bit. Do you know what I mean? It was. Yeah. I don't know how that would work. You know, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be good. Uh, it wouldn't be good, would it? Especially if none of those teams could go up. Do you know what I mean? You get teams. You might be getting teams getting promoted from Serie B that finished tenth. You know? Yeah, it's like tenth in Serie, <laughs> Serie B and you go up. You know? It's like it's. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how that would work out. But I mean, in terms of youth production, and everybody knows, I love my Italy national team. I want to see more young players produce. I think it's. I think it can only be a positive. I don't see how you can get a negative out of it. Put it that way. Yeah. If it doesn't no. work, it doesn't work. But it, I don't think it can produce anything negative. That's what I mean. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. We'll see, mm. we'll see. Okay, all right. Let's finish off with Badjo and Prem Face of the Week. Okay, um, Badjo. Who have we got for Badjo? Um, I think it's, uh, for me, it was Carlos Queiroz. I think the dignity in which he handled himself in a very ridiculous situation uh, that he was put in for no reason. Uh, was was brilliant. Um, I, I thought he was outstanding. Um, it was it was very respectful. Uh, it was it was very correct. I would I would have had I would have I would have probably gone. I would have been a little bit more angrier, but I think he showed that mm. you know that his his experience that he didn't he's not going to take that nonsense. Um, but no, it's uh, for me he was he was outstanding. Uh, and and Mbappe as well. I think has been very very good this week. Um, Spain, all of, the, I mean, the, the entire Spain team, you could say is a badger of the week for how they played. Um, yeah, it's one of those for me. Mm, okay. 
Uh, and Prem face of the week. <laughs> I mean, I, I really don't know. <laughs> I mean, listen, this this pod has gone way over. Um, so, I mean, we could we could do. In fact, maybe we should do that at some point. We could do a whole show on just all the Prem face stuff in the in this World Cup because, I mean, <laughs> English mainstream media and Prem facery during during World Cups and Euros. I mean, that is when it's overload. Yeah, it is. It's like a World Cup of it is a World Cup of Prem Facery. That, that that is what it is. The Prem Face World Cup. Premdemic, you called it, which I yeah, thought yeah, was hilarious. Yeah. Um but look, it's um I, I don't know what what is worse, but when talk sport, I can't it was a like Jason Cundy who said it. Jason Cundy and the other overweight ex footballer. <laughs> <laughs> who said that name. Mason Mount is better than Neymar because he's a better team player. I don't even think Mason Mount picks Mason Mount over Neymar. No. Like that that's that that's how ridiculous. I think Mason's Mount mum picks uh, picks uh, <laughs> picks Mason Mount over Neymar. Exactly. Whatever. I mean it's it's such a silly thing to say and again the, again it's it's Mason Mount ending up in a situation that he did nothing to be in because of some idiot making stupid claims. But here's the thing, though. I don't think this is sincere. I think they're just doing it for for the interactions. There's no one, no one seriously watches football, believes that Mason Mount is a better player than Neymar, and that you would pick Mason Mount over Neymar if you, if you, if you, if you can pick a player in a starting 11. No one thinks that. And, and, and I don't think he does. I think they're just doing it for the interactions. I, I don't think so, honestly. I, I, don't. I don't. Again, just through... through I mean, how often do we see this stuff, Nemo? We see this every single week, not just on talk sport. We see it everywhere. You know, this is just, this is, I was going to say this is the culture, but I don't want to get Jürgen Klinsmann. <laughs> you know, this yeah. is this stuff is rife in the mainstream English media. It is. And I don't care if I'm stereotyping. I, 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 it's true. <laughs> you know, we see this stuff. You see the examples. It's facts. You see it all the time. Just ridiculous comments, you know. And maybe, yes, maybe they absolutely know that the, the people that, that, that push this stuff out on social media and clip it up. They know that this is going to create more interaction. So out of the show, they pick these things that rather than pick other stuff. Absolutely. But they definitely don't deliberately say it for interactions. They genuinely believe this stuff. And that's what makes it just so ridiculous. And it wasn't the only thing they said. You know, they didn't just say Mount was better than Neymar. They said one Brazil team would get an England team about 10 minutes later. <laughs> you know, only one Brazil player would get an England team. You know, it's, it's insane. It's, it genuinely insane. is. It is insane. But I see. I don't. I, I can't imagine that anyone thinks that. Like I, I really can't think that it. It comes across so disingenuous because of the old theatrics surrounding it. I can't take it seriously. I don't think it is serious. Um. So yeah. No. I. I. Th- I think it's. I think many of many times they do believe stuff. Some of the stuff they say. But this Neymar Mount Mason Mount thing. It just comes off to me as really bad acting. Honestly. Yeah, um, well, I don't know because uh, I know Jason Cundy and and this other guy. Uh, <laughs> they, they, the some of the stuff they come up with, um, it's it's yeah, yeah. They they, they believe this stuff. <laughs> they, really, they really do believe this stuff. Um, oh dear. Okay, right. Let's leave it at that. Let's leave it at that. We will be back on Tuesday for the Q and A. And then Thursday, where we will do um, a review of the of the midweek, uh, well, all the all the rest of this World Cup action, and we'll do some more. We've got some more World Cup nostalgia um, topics as well, which I'm sure you'll love. And we'll, we'll we've got some um, some club related stuff as well, which I've 
had to hold from today because we went over so long. Way today. over. This, this is the longest our... episode we've ever done, I can I say. Know. <laughs> I know. What is going on? <laughs> what is going on? Uh, yeah. Okay, right, let's leave it at that. Until next time, ciao, ciao.